We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome into another edition of the Josh Hendrickson Show. I'm Neil McCready, joined here in the Clark Ford Studios by Josh Hendrickson. It is, uh, we're going to timestamp these things. It's Wednesday, September the 6th, a little after 3.30 in the afternoon. We're watching uh, the Cubs in the ninth inning of a game against, who are we playing today? The Giants. The Giants, that's right. The Cubs playing the Giants, wrapping up a, what appears to be a win. Cubs two outs away as we speak. So uh, we're talking about that. Josh, how are you? I'm pretty good. All right, well, let's start with let's start with a couple of sports topics here. I know you're a big sports guy. Um, Milwaukee lost earlier today. The Cubs are out away now. They're going to be a game and a half back in the Central. You're more of a of a optimist than I am about this. I have given up on this team two or three different times in the last week. Um, what do you think? Uh, I've been saying for a few weeks now that I think that they're going to win the division, and I kind of look stupid because they don't seem to make much progress, but I just look at them and I think this is the best team uh, in the National League Central, and it's only a matter of time before they catch the Brewers. Um, well, we'll see. I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about it, but I think, I mean, I'm I'm slightly optimistic just because I've, I've kind of uh, really developed an affinity for this team. They're, they're a lot of fun. It is a fun team. Um say a Suzuki rounds the bases now and he actually smiles and and for the first season and a half in a Cubs uniform he was stoic and you're like maybe he's just getting used to the culture maybe he's homesick I mean you know he's a human being and then they add guys like Morel and he's kind of fun and and the Swanson thing and it got criticized by a lot of people and I was a little cynical but the Swanson thing ended up being a pretty big signing because he brought a lot of that winning culture from Atlanta, and you can see it manifest itself. And then Cody Bellinger's gotten healthy, and he's having an MVP caliber season. And now every time he does he hit a home run today, I'm like, re-sign him. Just give him the money. It's not my money. Give it to him. I'm, I'm almost off the Shohei thing now because Shohei's going to have to have surgery, and, and who knows? And I'm like, you know what? Just give the money to Bellinger. And maybe go get another bat or two. Now I'm like, re-sign Candelario. I like him. And yeah, I'm with you. This team is kind of, it's gone from the beginning of the season when it was sort of maddening. Like they would lose all these bullpen games. And now they come back all the time from deficits and win. And they're kind of exciting. And they appear to like each other. And Wrigley, for anybody who's never been there in September when the Cubs are good, is a blast. 
and you can tell that the ballpark's fun and that the, the some of the players have said the neighborhood's kind of on fire right now, you know, in a good way. And I don't know, just kind of I'm with you. They've, these young pitchers are coming up. Justin Steele's been great. The kid Wicks today. Um, Conway, Arkansas kid, got another win. I think that's his third major league win since getting called up. And Javier Assad's been terrific. And they're just kind of fun. Now I'm, I watch them at night and I sort of just enjoy the team as opposed to being tortured by by them earlier in the year. Well, last night was a prime example of how things have changed, I think, since the beginning of the season because it was really back and forth. And uh, I was watching the national broadcast for some apparent reason. And uh, and they were talking about how, well, if the Giants score like four or more runs, they have like one of the best records of anybody in Major League Baseball and they score at least four runs. And the game was going back and forth. And it's just one of those games that at the beginning of the season they would have just lost. And they came back and took the lead and never looked back. And like the Morrell home run last night, the place just lost its mind. It just felt like it was already the playoffs. It did. It had a playoff feel to it. Yeah. <laughs> he does the bat flip and all that stuff. They just, I don't know. They're just, uh, they're fun. I mean, and then I'll allow myself mentally to do the thing where I'm like, you know, one of my good friends, Dan Jennings, I uh, used to work for the Florida Marlins, then the Miami Marlins. He now works for the Washington Nationals. And he used to always say, and one time this happened in, at the expense of our Cubbies, but he used to always say, hey, look, just make the tournament. Just make the tournament. Then you never know. Because once you make the tournament, it's a five-game series. It's a seven-game series. He's like, you know, the best team usually wins a seven-game series, but the best team doesn't always win a seven-game series. And so I know the Braves are there and the Dodgers are there, and they're these big, hulking, giant teams. But I'm like, you know... We, we could get hot. We could have a hot week. Put the pressure on them. You allow yourself to go down that. I think that's the fun part of being a fan of a team is you allow yourself to go, we'll get a shot at them if we're in the playoffs. The only team I don't want to meet in the playoffs is the Brewers because they have that front-line starting pitching that can just take you down. Burns and Woodruff can just get hot, and you've got no chance to hit them. But everybody else, I mean, I'm scared of the Braves. I respect the Dodgers, but – crazier things be fun yeah i completely changed on this i think a couple months ago i was just kind of like all right we're a couple years away let's think about this carefully at the trade deadline (laughs) you know and uh and for the last i don't know month and a half i've just been so happy that uh they that they were buyers and that they actually um improve themselves and that they just have continued to win because one thing I was afraid of is that they had kind of gotten hot before the deadline and I was afraid oh this is going to be they get hot they go out and they get a couple of guys and then they cool off and like the angels do yeah and and you're just kind of like well you know we just we just suffered those costs without any benefits and that that's kind of what I was afraid of but they've they've continued on and they're really fun to watch and you know, I, I'm excited to to see where it goes. The front office has sort of won my respect. They one of the deals they did at the deadline that nobody even talks about was the the Jose Quas or whatever the the kid from Kansas City, the reliever who's come in and his ERA's under one in, with the Cubs. And I'm like, well, they must have seen something that they they didn't just go, oh yeah, let's just do something with Kansas City and grab some kid and put him in the bullpen. 
they did something that they saw. And so now you look at that and like, well, and you look at some of the young pitchers and you're like, maybe they do know what they're doing, which was kind of my fear about two years ago was that they had no idea what they were doing and that they were just wrecking a franchise. Well, and I think it's hard as a fan because the front offense, the front office, I mean, going back in like a decade has really done nothing to make you think they don't know what they're doing. It, but it's like the there was this period when the Ricketts sort of decided that they were broke that uh, kind of really influenced my opinion of the front office in a way that it shouldn't. Because I was looking at the front office like, what are you doing? But they're operating under the constraints that they've been given by ownership and there's not there's not a lot that you can do. And And frankly, even looking back at the decisions that they've made, it, it's hard to identify a mistake that they've made in that whole process. Even things that made me upset at the time, I look back and I go, well, they were right. I was wrong. Yeah, no, they got them right. All right, we'll switch gears before people get mad at us for turning this into a Cubs podcast. Um, two weeks ago, when you were last here, I opened with the whole mask thing, which is one of my pet peeves. The mask is, drove me crazy in the time. When it finally went away, I was just so relieved it was over um, because I thought it was inane. I thought it was complete stupidity, and it was obvious that it was nothing but theater. We're back to some more of the theater. Two weeks ago, you sort of dismissed me on this, like, ah, oh, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. And I, I got where you were coming from, yet this week, the the first lady reportedly gets, according to the White House, gets COVID. She's She's fine has some symptoms, maybe the sniffles. I hope that Jill gets well. I wish no ill will on Mrs. Biden, Dr. Biden, Dr. Biden, excuse me. Um, the president, who was vaccinated and boosted and boosted and boosted some more, he's wearing a mask inside around people, according to the White House. They brought this up. And I couldn't help but think when I heard the White House bring it up, and now other people bring it up, there's a school system in Virginia that's masking the kids. Here we go again. What's this about? I saw where Tate Reeves once again came on Twitter and said, hey, Mississippi, don't worry about it. Never going to happen, which is pretty smart for him in an election year. Um, where's this going, though? What are we doing? Is this Is this as simple as the play in the playbook where you go, hey, in case we need – in case we need to do this mail-in thing, let's have the mail-in variant get, get rolling. And But it's a little early for that, right? I mean, it's just September. Yeah, it seems way too early for that. But I, I kind of wonder, I, I mean, it doesn't really make sense to me uh, because it's not like we're seeing, it, it's not like there's been some variant that pops up that has created like massive waves of illness. Like people... Uh, are getting COVID, but people have been getting COVID now for three years. And so it's not, you know, I get that it's like a new variant, but the new, like, the new variant doesn't seem any, you know, I mean, like every year we have, you know, cold and cold season, flu season, mm -hmm. right? And there's always, uh, you always have to get a different flu shot because it's a different variant of the flu. And some years are worse than others, but that's just kind of how we, we've always operated. And I don't really see why this would be all that different. Um, for people who want to wear masks, it's much more socially acceptable to do so. So, sure. you know, um, by all means, you can go out and do that. Uh, for people who 
want to continue to get vaccinated, there are um, many, many places that will vaccinate you. And so I don't really understand. For free. Yes. And I don't really understand why we're, we're sort of doing this stuff again where it's like, well, you know, because I, I saw them mention that uh, Joe Biden was going to be masking inside when he's near his wife. Um, but he and he would only be taking the mask off, you know, if he was at a, a sort of safe distance and things like that. And it just seems like they're going out of their way to do it. And I don't really I, I don't really get it. I don't I think I mean, one possibility here is that politically they don't know what to do because politically. This worked for them, right? The covid stuff all turned extremely political and everybody had teams and the teams had you know, uh, ideas about how to, how to deal with it. And their team was the team that was wearing the masks. And I kind of wonder if part of this is like, they don't really know what to do. Like maybe they think to themselves like, well, you know, it's kind of pointless to tell people to wear masks. Like we've been through this before, but if we don't say it, maybe we're going to lose some of our support from from people like maybe they'll think that we're not taking this seriously or maybe you know we lose some kind of credibility or or whatever and i mean maybe it's about that they don't want to lose their base they want to maintain the same line that they've had before of course it's unclear whether this matters to their base anymore right i mean it mattered at the height of the of the debate uh, over what to do and that sort of thing so it's it's not even clear to me that it matters to their base anymore i mean I mentioned last time that, you know, I have a lot of friends that pay a ton of attention to this stuff and I have a lot of friends who don't pay any attention to it, but even the people who pay a ton of attention to it, like they're, they're not, they're still like invested in knowing everything they can know about it, but they're not like, oh, we, we, we must be masking. We must be doing these things. And so even the people who still take it like very, very seriously, they don't seem to care about this stuff. And maybe I'm extrapolating too much from personal experience, but I just, I kind of wonder if the, if this is just them not knowing what to do politically. And so they're just falling back on, well, let's just kind of do what we've done in the past and then nobody will get mad at us. And the only people who will get mad are the people who aren't going to vote for us anyway. Okay, I'm curious because three years ago, your field, college professors, academics, they were pretty worked up about COVID. I mean, they 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 wanted to close. They wanted to do Zoom. They wanted to mask. They wanted to socially distance. They they wanted the kids vaccinated. The whole deal. A year later, when things kind of started to open back up, it was more of the same. I mean, it was, hey, we just we can't we can't rush back into this. It was just two years ago. So now there's the talk about a new variant, and there's some COVID back in the news, and. Oprah Winfrey got it, and boy, they said on The View, hey, y'all, this is, oh, Oprah's got COVID, and everybody went, oh. Um, I mean, not to stereotype your field, because I'll stereotype my field as very frequently, but I'm guessing that there's a little angst starting to build up. Is that something that you hear on campus from some of the academic types, that, hey, this is something we really need to keep an eye on before this becomes calamitous? I haven't heard much about it, but I've heard indirectly. So there have been, I mean, there have been people contacting the administration and sort of asking them, 
Yeah, some of these are innocuous questions. Like some of them are like, hey, I got a faculty member with COVID. Like, what are they supposed to do? Okay. Like, what's the protocol? Yeah. And some of it is sort of like, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> and the, the messaging thus far has been, you know, if you're sick, don't come to work. And, you know, there were times when you were sick before and you couldn't have class. And so you just do the same thing that you did when you didn't have class before. And in yeah. fact, you know, now there are other options. And so like, you know, if you, if you are very sick, um, but you know, but you can still communicate with, with students, like, you know, give them the option to, to get on and ask you questions on zoom or something or, yeah. or whatever, um, while you're out. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of bizarre because, it's like, what, what are we supposed to do? And it's like, well, you know, like illness was a thing before COVID. Like we always dealt with illness whenever People you were, got yeah, sick, when, yeah. whenever you were sick, like there was, there's pretty standard protocol about what you were supposed to do and not supposed to do. And, um, and, and universities are pretty flexible. I mean, they don't want you to just like cancel class and not do anything, but you know, but in the past there were, there were lots of other choices. So if you were going to miss uh, if you were going to miss class, maybe you could send like your your grad student in to just kind of do like a review session. Proctor the class for yeah. a day. Maybe you could find another faculty member who would fill in for you. Or maybe you just say, hey, guys, like I'm not going to be in today, but I'm going to give you this assignment. I want you to work on this and turn it in, you know, on Thursday or on Tuesday or whatever. Uh-huh. And that was just normal everyday protocol. And so, I mean... It seems pretty clear to me that universities made it. I mean, yeah. tons of them just kept kept floating right along in the in the nineties and eighties and such. Yeah, and so I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that uh, there's a protocol in place, and I don't think that we need to think too hard about it. But uh, but I have heard, you know, through the grapevine that people have been asking about. I mean, it. look, Glenn Boyce is never going to call me looking for advice, but my advice would be very simple. It would be my response would be, listen, this university thing is about attracting students and then educating students. And maintaining students. And there's a lot of stuff going on around here that students fund. And we've got to, for whatever collection of reasons, Lane Kiffin, the charm of the town, the climate, hell, I don't know. Whatever it may be, we've got this record freshman class in, in, in town for the second straight year. Yeah, We're not messing with this gravy train. No, sir. That, I mean, that would be my response to anybody who asked and just been like, hey, we're not, we're not, we're not going down that road. No, and that's the other thing is that you can't make the same mistakes that you made the last time. Because to some extent, you know, when you're dealing with something unprecedented, you're going to make mistakes. And also when you're dealing with various different constituencies, you are going to have to make very difficult decisions about how to handle the interests of all of those different constituencies. But it seems pretty clear that there's not that much benefit from a lot of the things that universities did last time around. Uh, and so given what we know about COVID, given what we know about masks, given what we know about vaccines, all these kinds of things, it, it doesn't seem like we should be, you know, pursuing any of those uh, strategies that we did before. And also not just like that some of these things didn't work. But again, like one of the things that I was stressing originally was, hey, we got to think about how this is affecting what students are learning. And we know it's pretty, pretty clear now that students learn a lot more when they're in the classroom 
than when they're on Zoom or they're doing assignments on their own. Yeah, of course. 100%. I'm always surprised that people even argue that. And I wonder if the people who argue that have kids. Do you have kids? Because, I, I mean, I've got three. You've got kids. I saw a notable drop-off. A notable drop-off. And then there's evidence now that points at it. We should not want to go back down that road again. I mean, there's there's this basic fundamental... People will get mad at me. They're mad at me on Twitter today because I've, I've made fun of the mask thing and stuff. And, and they're like, you know, you, you've just not learned the lesson. I'm like, no, you've, you're the one that didn't learn the lesson. Part of, our in, part of our responsibility as adults is to take care of the younger people. That's like one of the primary jobs, right? And we didn't take care of them the last time. We, we, we owe it to them to take better care of them this time. And making them either go to school on, on a computer or go to school with something covering their face where they can't see emotion and they can't breathe and they, they're distracted by that. Why would we go down that road again? We now know that it was failure. And I, I think it's what you said. It's this inability to admit, hey, I was wrong. Well, and I think, too, there's a, there's a great line by the great economist Thomas Sowell where um, somebody asked him, you know, like, what's the fundamental insight of economics? And he said, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. And I think that there are a lot of people who live in a world where they don't, where, where, they, they don't think of things that way. They think of it like, oh, we need to find the solution. And like the point is, is like, no, there's always a trade-off. Whatever you go, whatever you do is going to entail some cost. So the question is, what is the cost and is it worth bearing that cost? And I think that we've learned that the vast majority of policy things that we tried uh, were not worth the cost. All right, got a question for you. One of our readers sent me this and said, hey, I'd love to get Josh's thoughts on this. This is a, a tweet. Let me get my reader, reading glasses. I'm certainly not one of the youngs anymore. It says, the, uh, the real shocker in today's job report, this was from uh, September 1st, so it was about a week ago. The real shocker in today's job report, 1.2 million native-born workers lost their job <clears throat> Excuse me, in August. They were replaced by 711,000 foreign-born workers. Uh, this is in the last 711,000 foreign-born jobs added in August, the most in three years. Meanwhile, there were 1.2 million native-born American jobs lost in August, the biggest drop since the COVID collapse. What do you, uh, what do you, if anything, do you make of that? They wanted to know. So I dug into this because it was a really weird, I also saw this tweet and it's, it's a very weird sort of outcome. And I think on the tweet also had a, like a graph on it. And even on the graph, it looked bizarre. Mm -hmm. And so I went to the report and because I was trying to figure out, okay, what's, what's driving this. And so is there like one sector or something like that, that just had you know, a bunch more layoffs than they normally do. And maybe those people are just primarily native born um, Americans or something. And so I went through the report and like nothing obvious stood out. And so, but what I did was, is I went and I looked at, so if you, if you get the report and you, and you kind of click through on like the Bureau of Labor Statistics website, you can, you can get a lot of tables. And I noticed that like a lot of tables, um, 
for these reports, you know, they, they don't do a lot of month by month comparisons. They typically do like year over year comparisons. There are like very few of these that do uh, month by month. And what that made me think is that a lot of this might have to do with sort of like seasonal variations. So what I did is instead of looking at like the month to month changes uh, for employment, I looked at the change from a year ago. And if you look at a change from a year ago, it actually doesn't seem as dramatic. So uh, in fact, if you look at like the change from last August, uh, the native born population uh, who are employed increased by I think 1% and foreign born and the foreign born population increased by about 6% year over year. And so naturally the foreign born was going to be higher given just the month to month changes. But I think what this, I think what's going on here is like some of this is like a seasonal aspect. So if foreign born um, people and native born people tend to separate into different industries and different jobs, um, then seasonal variations in those jobs are going to explain fluctuations in employment. And those fluctuations in employment are going to be based on where these, uh, you know, uh, whether you are native born or foreign born, since you tend to share similar jobs. But I think most of this is just seasonal variation. So because even though native born was down like really dramatically, uh, from last month, it was still higher than it was last year at this time. And so it looks much more even if you do the year to year comparisons. And so I think that most of this is, has to do with seasonal variation and the types of occupations that these people sort into. Do you, what are you, what are your thoughts on what's happening in real estate with the mortgage rates are as high as they are. A lot of corporate entities are buying up residential homes, turning them into rental properties, raising rents, making it much more difficult. Speaking of young people, young people getting out of college, young people starting families, young people that are chasing the proverbial American dream. I know I asked you about this a little bit the last time, but it keeps coming up. This I listened to two or three podcasts that I really like, and this keeps coming up as a topic of concern. It's like the sweeping topic that needs to be discussed that needs to be not only a part of the national political but in you know regional state local talks like we live in a town where there's not a hell of a lot of middle class housing really you know people are it's hard to live here um where do you see that going is this a cyclical thing that fixes itself or is this the beginning of a of an american crisis well i think part of this has to do with the fact that they're okay. When you live in this low interest rate environment for such a long time, it doesn't make you're looking for, you're looking for yield, right? You're like, you're looking for a way to save money. And so what some people do is like, uh, you know, they move into riskier assets and things like that. So, Oh, interest rates are low. I don't want to leave my money in a bank account where I'm going to get 0.5%. I'll put it in the stock market or something like that. But I think what a lot of people do and what a lot of people have done is they look at this and they say, well, you know, um, why not, why don't I just buy a bigger house, right? It, like the, the mortgage isn't, isn't as high. The, um, housing keeps its value over time. 
Um, you know, at the end of the day, even if housing prices don't rise that much, I can still live in the house. So it's not like I'm stuck with some investment that I don't want. And, um, and, and so housing is just kind of like this reliable thing to invest in. And I think that we have, um, you know, we, we live in a world where we're dependent on monetary policy to sort of anchor the value of our currency and policymakers over the last 50 years haven't done a great job of that. And when people, you know, don't do a great job of that, people are going to find alternative ways to, to store their, to store their wealth. And so I think that's a lot of what's going on with housing. And I think that you can explain this when you look at the data on housing, because if this was like a housing bubble, uh, typically what you would see is you would see like, uh, I mean, I guess what you would expect to see is that the markups on houses would be pretty high, right? The people who are in construction would be building houses and charging you a much higher price than it costs them to build it. But even the cost of construction is rising at the same rate as housing prices. And so this suggests that maybe this is a story of the declining value of the dollar uh, more than it is, uh, you know, something like some kind of asset bubble or something that you hear people talk about all the time. Um, in terms of the people who are buying up the real estate, I, I again, this is a low interest rate phenomenon. This is, you know, if you, if you live in a world of 0% interest rates and you are like a hedge fund, this is like the greatest possible world that you could be in because you can just, it's almost impossible to lose money, right? You just right. borrow, you borrow money, uh, plow it into productive assets and that earn a positive rate of return and you're basically paying nothing. And so, you know, um, I mean, you saw, you, you even saw this during, um, you even saw this because there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of concern coming from people in the financial world because, uh, pla places like Robinhood started offering like margin trading and they were like, oh, you know, it's like 1% interest, you know, we'll lend to you at like 1% and stuff like that, you know, during the pandemic. And you had all these people that are just like, oh, you'll lend to me at 1%. Okay. Well, I'll just like, you know. Uh, I'll just max out my margin account here and I'll just buy a bunch of stock. And then when the stock goes up, you know, I'll make a bunch of money. Now, of course, if the stock goes down, you still have to pay back that margin. But but the thing is, is that um, if you know what you're doing and you do this well, then you can potentially make uh, much larger rates of return on your own money than you would otherwise. And this is true of uh, all of these large companies that are going out and buying real estate because they figure like, okay, we have an, we have tons of access to credit. And so like, why not just go out there and, and buy the real estate and own the real estate and then, you know, rent it out to people. And then we can potentially make the money off of the appreciation, uh, on the real estate. But also in the meantime, you know, we can, uh, we can have an income stream from the rent. And I think that this is, th this is not uh, particularly desirable. Um, I don't really want a hedge fund, uh, renting a house to me. But it, it's sort of like, uh, it, but it's sort of like the inevitable result of of these policies that we've had for the for I mean, essentially the last decade. So, but once they have those properties, they own them, and if they start buying up entities, whether they're foreign entities or or domestic entities, and the what you really want with residential housing is you want people owning houses. Right, you want people to borrow money from the bank and buy a house and pay a mortgage and and 
pursue the the idea of paying off the mortgage and ultimately owning the house as this this capital that you can pass down to your children and and it that's that's kind of the system that at least maybe that's maybe that's too uh, idealistic maybe it was never realistic to continue on that way but well i think the bigger problem here is like a lot of these financial firms uh, i mean they're doing this and you know, a lot of times you don't necessarily like worry about these kinds of things because if like uh, the company is taking a loss or something, they have to sell these things off or maybe the company in general is not doing well on like some other aspect of their of their business and they end up shutting down. And, you know, and then, you know, somebody has to liquidate those assets or somebody comes in and buys the company and then they decide, hey, we don't want all this real estate or, or, or something like that. I mean, I think the bigger problem that we have is that, you know, there's a reason why we have these massive financial institutions, and that's because it's impossible for a financial institution to fail in the United States. We don't let any of them fail. We don't, um, you know, we we always protect them. It's always uh, super important that we protect them. And not only do we protect them, but like, you know, we bail them out and then they give themselves bonuses with the bailout money. And, uh, and nobody gets prosecuted. Nobody gets fired. Nobody, you know, nothing happens to any of these people. And I think that's my, the and I but I also think that that's a lot of the reason why people are upset about this because they look at these financial firms buying up real estate and they think these are the same financial firms, you know, that are um, you know that sort of wreaked havoc during the financial crisis and these these are some of the same you know people who uh, made huge mistakes and didn't have to suffer any consequences from them and so naturally people are going to start getting upset that you know the, those companies are getting involved in other things. All right, I get you on to sort of be the common sense guy, to hear something that's going on in the world, be logical, sensical, rational. You are. So I'm going to throw one at you. This is a little breaking news today. I don't know if you're aware of this or not because I think it's happened in the last since you've been here. Uh, it's Wall Street Journal I'm reading from. I'll give credit to the person. It's Aruna Viswanatha, I think is the uh, the author of this piece in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Dateline Washington special counsel David Weiss said Wednesday he would seek an indictment of Hunter Biden by September 29th, keeping the younger Biden's legal problems in the spotlight as President Biden pursues re-election campaign. Weiss's statement issued in an update to the federal court in Delaware provided confirmation that prosecutors are moving ahead with a criminal case against the younger Biden after his legal team and the government have traded blame in recent weeks over the implosion of two previously negotiated agreements that would have resolved a long-running investigation into Hunter Biden's tax and business dealings. Biden had expected to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax counts and agree to other conditions to skirt prosecution on a gun charge and avoid jail time. Instead, the deal unraveled at a court hearing in July, talks to salvage it, approached an impasse, and Attorney General Merrick Garland named Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss as a special counsel to continue the investigation. In the brief filing, Weiss told the federal judge in Delaware that the legal clock set in motion by the initial filing of the case meant that the government was obliged to obtain a grand jury indictment by Friday, September the 29th. Um, the government intends to seek the return of an indictment in this case before that date, the filing said. The government referred to both the plea deal and the separate agreement related to the gun charge as an unexecuted draft uh, on and on. So your opinion, this has always been sort of viewed by one side 
as the great smoking gun against Joe Biden. The other side has said, this is nothing. This is a myth. This is, this is a right-wing fantasy. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at Babbel.com slash BlueWire. That's 60% off at Babbel.com slash BlueWire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash BlueWire. Rules and restrictions apply. The fact that he's going to get indicted, we've been talking about the significance of indictments for a few months now, as the former president's been indicted four times. If Hunter Biden gets indicted, I have two questions. One, does this make the does it force the media to sort of dive into this the way that they've dived into Trump? And then two, does it do anything to sort of cancel out the in Trump indictments where maybe some of the people in the media are like, man, all these people are getting indicted. I don't know how it affects me. I'm going to vote for the person that's best for my pocketbook. So first of all, there's no reason to ever think that the media is going to take this seriously at all. <laughs> these are people. Th- this is this is how these people operate. So okay, these I, knew are, you, I knew you were going here with your with your media theory because it's so spot on. No. As I was reading that article, and I know where he's going. So go ahead. No, they <laughs> they all go to elite schools. They all learn the same deconstructionist stuff. And all the deconstructionist stuff is just about like tearing down arguments to try to figure out what this argument is really about, right? And it involves a lot of debunking, right? Yeah. So you've got these people with elite educations and their education consists of learning how to debunk things, right? (laughs) They all live in a bubble, okay? So like anytime something happens that is not reported by the mainstream media, 
they immediately assume that it must be false or some right wing narrative because they don't know anybody who's talking about it. It's like the person who was like, I can't believe Nixon was elected. Like, I don't know anybody who voted for him. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, you know, and so they, they have this elite education in debunking. They, um, you know, they, they live in a bubble. And so all they do is their, their first instinct is to kind of check around. And then when they don't, you know, hear anything from people that they trust, then immediately what they do is they just say, okay, um, this must be wrong. So let's set about to debunk it. Um, these, they're, they're not going to cover it seriously. They've, they've denied that anything happens here. And, and the thing is, is that you can, you can spot the people whose education was just debunking things. You can spot these people a million miles away. Sure. Because they always just say things that are completely irrelevant. Like you bring this up to some of these reporters and what they say is, is, well, it doesn't appear that he broke any laws. And it's like, okay, but this is the president of the United States. So like if the threshold for being elected is you haven't broken any laws, that seems like a pretty low bar to be the president of the United States, right? Like I don't fundamentally care whether he broke the law. What I care about is, is there truth to any of this story? Like by definition, people who are good at being corrupt are not going to break the law. They're always going to have plausible deniability. They're always going to know how to get around these things. And so the idea that like there's no smoking gun about Joe Biden breaking the law is kind of irrelevant. Like it's, it just completely misses the point. And there's enough smoke here that I don't like, but they're so uninterested. I don't know if you saw this. There was a comedian. There was a comedian. I don't even know the comedian, but there was a comedian who had a guy from the Washington Post on his podcast. And, oh, I saw yes, this. Yes, and, yes, yes. And, and he and he reads him the text. He's like, okay, Hunter Biden sent this text to his sister. And the text says, like, I'm tired of having to generate this income for pops. And he's like, what do you think that meant? And the guy's like, I have no idea what that meant. What could it have possibly meant? Like, what, And then he's like, but you work for the Washington well, Post. I mean, either he was referring to his father or he was referring to the late Willie Stargell. <laughs> right. I mean, one or the other. I mean, or, or was it there? A, no, it was, it was his name was fat. I mean. But okay, I'm, I'm playing devil's. Yep. You're right. Yep. I know that you're right. But I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute. The media has rightfully made a big deal out of indictments against Donald Trump, charges that are filed, potential trials that could be had. The one in Georgia is going to be televised. It's going to be live streamed and televised. It's going to be in March of 2024 if everything goes according to timing and who knows. But if it does, we are going to be riveted as a nation watching a trial in Georgia. Okay, we are. So the media goes, see, it's legit. We're not making this up. It's legitimate. It's in court. Okay, well, for the first time, the Hunter Biden thing goes from being sort of out there, oh, it's going to be a couple of misdemeanors, you right-wingers are nuts, to no, now it's going to be in a federal court, a federal indictment that's going to be if he's convicted, he goes to prison, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know how they can say this is a big deal. This is not a big deal. And when you dive into the Hunter Biden stuff, and look, I'm to be clear, when you dive into the Trump indictments, you're like, mm, some of this, some of this is trouble for, for the former president. When you dive into the Hunter Biden stuff, you can't help but ask, how in the world am I supposed to believe that this guy whose elevator doesn't go to the top, who has a very clear history of major drug addiction, which makes him quite vulnerable to outside influences. 
this guy who there's no way you can think that Hunter Biden got to the places that he got without using his father's influence. And it becomes very difficult to believe that his father wasn't aware that his son was using his name as influence. And then there are financial records that very clearly point out that then Vice President Biden very likely benefited from his son's overseas things. I don't know how you can, in one hand, dive into the Trump legal matters and on the other hand, not at least acknowledge the Biden legal matters. Well, I'm going to tell you what they're going to do. So what they're going to say is, is they're going to say, well, the Trump legal problems are Trump's legal problems and Hunter Biden's legal problems are Hunter Biden's legal problems. And, um, you know, this is just a, this is a troubled young man, you know, lost. This is a story of a father's love. Trying to find his way (laughs) and a dad just trying to get him a job. You know, who among us has not gotten their son a job on the board of a Ukrainian oil company? That's, you know, I mean. We've we've all done it, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. The I mean, I was trying to help Carson line up a summer job the other day, and I said, "Hey, man, have have you looked into Barisma?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just <laughs> what, but, what do you know about fracking, for example, Cars? But I think I think this. I, see, I think that the comparison here is actually really, really uh, is really, really good. Um. Because it highlights how stupid the media narratives become because like the things. So, for example, it seems like the thing that's the most trouble for Donald Trump legally is like the documents case. That's what seems like it's the most trouble. Also, this just seems like some of the dumbest laws that you could have around uh, around like a president. Right. Like like. When you look at the law, you're just kind of like, eh, like I don't know, because everything uh, involving that law just seems like this is not something we should prosecute like a, a president for, unless we have evidence that like, um, you know, he's committing treason or something. And um, but like possession of the documents themselves are not evidence, right? Like there would have to be something. There would there would have to be something else. But but legally speaking, legally speaking, that seems to be the most troubling thing. And on, on the other side, you know, the, the entire argument that they kind of make is like, well, you know, it doesn't seem like any of this stuff was illegal. And it's like, yeah, but it actually seems really, really bad because this is like influence peddling, right? <laughs> like you are, you're selling access, you know, it appears like what's happening is that you're selling access um, to your father, uh, to people around the world. And so if I'm if I'm thinking about this morally, right? Morally, it seems like the influence peddling is worse than having some classified documents that you're not supposed to have. Legally, having the classified documents um is is worse for Trump than this Hunter stuff is for for Joe Biden because I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here and say the reason we haven't found a sort of smoking gun about Joe Biden is that you know he's you know, people who do this sort of thing are smart enough to have plausible deniability. You can't be in Washington as long as he was, and yeah, half and a century with without without being successful at at this sort of corruption, right? Like you, um, because if 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 there's even a hint that you're involved in this kind of corruption and you've been around for this long, I'm just going to assume that you know how to that you know you know how to you know how to do it, 
right? And um, and so it, it's kind of this bizarre scenario where we're making a lot out of things that seem small and we're making things small uh, out of things that like should deserve more attention. Like personally, I don't really want a president who uh, is, you know, whose son is selling his, his influence to the highest bidder, right? And, oh, you can have a meeting, you know, if you pay this money or, you know, we can do this for you if you pay this money. I mean, that's certainly what appears to have happened. And I mean, the thing, the, the thing that's kind of shocking to me is it doesn't matter legally, and it doesn't even matter if it's true. Like there's the video of Joe Biden talking about how, you know, he told him they had to fire that like Ukrainian prosecutor. And the thing that you hear from the media is like, well, there's no. Who was investigating Burisma. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and, so, and so the thing, exactly. And so the thing is, is like the media will say things like, well, there's no evidence of a connection between the two. And it's sort of like, okay, there's no evidence that could convict someone in a court of law, maybe. But just to the casual observer, if you see those two things happening, you think to yourself, I think there's something else going on here. Even if there's not, you think that. And you shouldn't think that about a presidential candidate. So it doesn't really matter at the end of the day whether it's true. It matters whether or not, you know, like it, when it comes to electing a president, I don't think that you have to find a smoking gun. If you just find smoke... The smoke should be sufficient to say, yeah, you know what? Maybe not this guy. So you know what's interesting to me, and I don't, I don't have a crystal ball, and I don't know how, I don't know how all people think. But I was listening to a podcast that I really enjoy. It's called Breaking Points. It's got Sager and Crystal, and I don't know their last names, but he's kind of conservative. She's liberal, but they're both very smart, and they both stay very rational. And very rarely do they let their opinions sort of cloud their logic. Okay. And so I enjoy their show. And they were talking about some new polling data that has started to come out. And in it, it shows that Biden is losing traction with young people because they're concerned about finances. They're concerned about their ability to get money, their ability to buy a home, their ability to build a job, to get a job, to build a career, things of that nature. Things that people in their 20s kind of start to think about. And that was a demographic that in the past few elections has voted overwhelmingly Democrat. And it was in conjunction with Biden losing some, some uh, around the edges, some support in his numbers with, uh, with blacks. Okay. And the point that was being made was, look, it was a pretty close election when you boil it down in 2020. It was, came down to a handful of states that Biden won narrowly. And if Biden loses some stuff around the edges, the ERA rises just a little bit. The, the walk rate rises a little bit. Strikeouts drop a little bit. Suddenly you don't win, you lose, right? It's, it's that close. And so I, I can't help but wonder if in 2024, when if the people like you who are economists who understand the money, if some of your predictions come true, not just you, but others in your field who are like, hey, look, there's a chance that 2024 is a little bloody, that we kind of pay for some of the stuff that we've done over the last few years as a, as a policy. If that's the case and people are losing their jobs and some stuff like that happens, I can't help but wonder when these trials are going on, if some people in the American public watch them and go, that's it? That's all you got? He stored some documents. How did how does that impact me? And then and then here's the other thing that like the J six thing. And again, I'm not I'm not the guy that goes J six was nothing. I'm not saying that at all. 
But you got to prove that Trump like basically committed treason to, and I think that's going to be hard to do. And when that comes out, people watch that. These people that I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the hard left or the hard right. I'm talking about the people kind of in the middle who are just thinking about getting from March to April, getting from April to May. I can't help but wonder if they kind of go, wait a minute. This isn't everything you guys said it was going to be. And then they look at the other stuff with Biden, and I'm getting to something here. In that same show, they're like, hey, look, there's a in Washington circles. These Both these people are based in Washington. They both have a lot of experience in politics. They know one of them worked with Bernie Sanders at one point. One kind of was worked in the Trump circle. They're like, hey, there's some real rumors in Washington that Joe Biden's not running for re-election. I can't help but wonder if some of this stuff starting to happen now is the beginning of seed planting to move on from a a really bad candidate. The same polling, 67%, or maybe 69, 67, 69, whatever, is a ba- massive number of the people that, that were polled, Republicans, Democrats, independents, said Joe Biden's too old to be president, too old to run for re-election. Nothing to do with his politics, just his age, and you see him, and you watch him on TV, and it is what it is. You see we live in a visual world now you know people said that about reagan like reagan second term like you know and they're right i mean he was having some but reagan was in his six he was 68 when he was reelected. he was a pup compared to these cats and i mean i i i just can't as i listen to you talk and i know you're right i just can't tell there's something in the back of my mind that goes they're planting a seed well, there's a couple of ways to look at this Hunter Biden thing. So if we're trying to figure out what's going on and whether there are political machinations behind what's going on with Hunter Biden, I think there's two I mean, I think that there's there's two possible explanations. So one explanation is is that the Biden people have just been doing everything that they could possibly do to just try to bury it, right? Just try to get the story to go away, <clears throat> including you know, some of these plea agree you know when it wouldn't really wouldn't go away like some of these plea agreements um you know the plea agreements were laughable that's why they got you know thrown out but the um but one one solution is that they've just kind of been trying to downplay this and 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 keep it you know out of the news as long as possible and then when they realized they couldn't keep it out and maybe you know now we just well let's just do like a plea deal and then that'll satisfy people because you know they'll um, you know, they'll, they'll see that justice was done and, uh, they won't pay attention to the details of the plea deal, but then the plea deal got thrown out. And so then now you're, you're, um, you know, now you're moving even further down the road. So that, that's one possible explanation. I mean, another possible explanation is, is that this whole thing, um, that, you know, that, that this whole thing about Hunter Biden was not, um, opposition research, but like research from within the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that um, people leaked this before the election, but then immediately, you know, had people come out against it and say, oh, this is disinformation, just as a kind of warning to Joe Biden as like, hey, you know, we rally behind you to put you into office, but you need to remember that like this is about the party. It's not about you. And uh, and, and so, I mean, that's a possibility. And then also it's a possibility that they're using this as a way to um, to kind of push him out, to kind of be like, look, you know, um, it's time, you know, it's time for you to move on and we need to replace you with somebody else. And so, you know, they're, uh, and, and so maybe then 
they're pushing it along as a way to kind of give him an excuse to sort of announce one day, you know what, like my, my health isn't great. I've decided I'm not going to do this. Um, or my family needs, yeah. Me. Or, you know, the, you know, if he, if he doesn't do that, then well, um, this, this story just won't go away. And then it, and then maybe they decide to run somebody in the primary against him, or maybe they, um, you know, try to find some other solution. So, I mean, there's two possible narratives here. And I think those are the two possible narratives. It's either, something that they've been trying to get rid of, or maybe this is actually, you know, the, you know, the calls coming from inside the house. Maybe this is people, you know, who are high up in the, in the party that are kind of like, this is the way to keep him doing what we want him to do. You can tell I'm fascinated with presidential politics. I always have been. It's, this is wild to watch how this is beginning to unfold. And there's still time for things to happen, right? I mean, there's still, Iowa doesn't do a caucus until January. Super Tuesday's not until March, the day after Trump supposedly goes on trial in, in, in Fulton, <laughs> Fulton County. But both parties really rolling the dice if they stick with this candidate. I mean, there's just so much. It's like I keep thinking like a Bugs Bunny cartoon where the coyote just is carrying around these bundles of dynamite. Remember that? You know, you're like, man, yeah, you might get the you might get bugs. Or the Roadrunner or whatever with, with, the, with the, the dynamite. But you're holding dynamite. Right. And it's lit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You, if you don't get rid of this pretty quick, you're going through the cliff again. I mean, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm nowhere near as articulate as you are about it. I just keep thinking, man, everybody involved in this is like on a, what could turn into a suicide mission politically in a heartbeat. Well, I think both parties are in an awkward place. Because I think the Republican Party would prefer to have a different candidate. For sure. But um, but that's part of the reason that the, that the people who support Trump, um, you know, only support Trump because they sort of don't like uh, the actual party apparatus. Um, in the Democratic Party, it's kind of weird because they've kind of painted this, themselves into a corner, I think. And I think that they painted themselves into a corner because they picked Joe Biden well, they rallied around Joe Biden because he was the only guy who really had a chance to win. And, uh, but then he picked Harris as his VP and Harris has been awful. And I think that the difficult place that they're in is she is not the heir apparent, but how do you move her aside for someone else? Can't. And so they're, they're kind of in a, they're, they're kind of in a difficult, in a difficult spot. I believe that too. I, I think the goal when they decided to go with Biden and politically it made a lot of sense, but they, for the second time in I guess four years, they overestimated a female in their, in their party once with Hillary Clinton with this, this assumption that she was just the, it was meant to be, it was destiny that Hillary Clinton would become president and she would break the glass ceiling and all of that. And, they ignored her unfavorables. And then with Kamala Harris, it checked so many political boxes, except they ignored the fact that she never got anything close to winning a primary. Like she had no political appeal. That I kept, I kept thinking, is no one in the room going, hey, the only problem with, the, with her, guys, is that people don't like her. This is politics. You have to be likable. It's the DeSantis problem. He's just not all that likable, really. 
And so I keep looking at it and thinking they thought that they would get Biden elected, get Trump out, get rid of this national nightmare in their eyes. Biden would sort of stabilize things, get through the midterm, they'd win the midterm, and then they'd get Biden to dance off into the sunset, have a, you know, a giant going away party, bid him adieu as a conquering hero, and then she would take over and they'd get some shit done. I think that's what they thought. And then he stumbled and bumbled through the first two years of his presidency. They didn't dominate the midterms at all. And her unlikable numbers are so bad that he's popular compared to her. And his popularity is not good. It's like in the mid-30s. Well, and we got a preview of what it would be like if she ran against Trump. I don't know if you saw this clip, but when Trump did his interview with Tucker Carlson, he talked about her and he was like, and he described her, he said, you know, that he was making fun of the way that she talks and Tucker is like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, you know, she just says like, well, the bus goes here and the bus goes there because that's what buses do. <laughs> And it was just sort of dead on how ridiculous like a lot of these like speeches are. And it's just like if he is going to be like that, like they're going to have no chance because people are just going to like, I mean, because that's the thing that people don't seem to realize is like if you make your opponent look silly. I mean, this is what he did to Jeb Bush. He made him look silly. And then, you know, and so it doesn't matter. Like all, all of these like pundits want to have all, you know, they, they want to have all of these like high-minded conversations about this stuff. And it's like, no, like if a guy makes you look stupid, uh, your campaign is over. Right. And I think that they, they, they recognize they're in a hard spot. I think what they, I think that there's, I, I think there's probably some kind of internal battle here where people are saying, look, Biden can still beat Trump. It looks like Trump's going to be the nominee. We don't have anything to worry about. And you have other people who are saying like, well, you know, I don't know. Um, it, and that's the thing is that, I think that people are really, really discounting uh, Trump. And I, and I will freely admit that like six months ago, I was like one of these people. Like I was just like, oh, there's, there's like, there, there's no I way. Was, like, I was too. He can win the nomination, but he'll have no chance as president. And, but now, I mean, there's polling data that's coming out where they asked, they asked people like, would you say that like Donald Trump had many accomplishments as president? And an overwhelming majority was like, yes. And they were like, would you say that, um, you know, Joe Biden has had, you know, many accomplishments as president? And, you know, there was a majority said no. Yeah. And so the thing is, is this, if they do run again against each other, it's a weird, weird thing because you have two presidents running against each other. And they can both, you know, and and one is not going to really want to run on his record and the other one is. And that and and I think that, you know, that gives an advantage to Trump. And I get that like tons of people hate Donald Trump. And I get that there are certain people who are not going to vote for him under any circumstances. But those people tend to vote for Democrats anyway. I don't know that there are I, I don't know how, you know, what fraction of, you know, the Republican base feels that way. And at the end of the day, like if you get to 2024 and the economy is not doing well, and Donald Trump is in this uh, trial, and let, like, let's face it, the, the the charges in Atlanta are the most frivolous charges that have been brought against him, and this is the one that they're going to broadcast. So I'm sorry, but that's also going to play into, um, you know, his popularity and sympathy with people. What if a jury convicts him 
on a, on a count. Is that going to, and he becomes at that point a convicted felon out on bond appealing his conviction during a presidential election cycle. Does that turn the American people on him? A lot of people still really trust the, the jury system in our country. I think that the only thing that the based on the information I have right now and just looking at things, I think that the only way the Republican Party can have a different nominee for president in 2024 is if they do exactly what the Democrats did uh, in 2020. And that is they all um, they all just drop out except one person and they rally around the one person. And the problem for them is, is that there's only one person that I think they um, that that works for. And that's Ron DeSantis. And. But it's going to be very hard. But it, I mean, if polling numbers continue, it's going to be very hard for him to make the case that it should be him because there are a lot of other people who are running, you know, uh, neck and neck with him. And he should be, you know, by by all metrics, he should be uh, the front runner. But again, you know, he chose a bunch of all these uh, old um you know, Republican Party establishment advisors who have given him horrible advice, which is predictable because they generally give horrible advice. Speaking of advice, is Trump doing the right thing, not camp, not uh, debating with the other Republicans? I think he is doing the right thing because, frankly, the debate that they had just kind of looked like the it looked like the junior high debate team, right? Like, I mean, there was, um, you know, it was just. And part of it is, is there's a bunch of people who run for president who have no chance to win the presidency. Like, um, and I get that people also run for other reasons. Like, I mean, like, so for example, like Mike Pence is never going to be the president. He's, he's never going to be the president. He's, he's never been popular. Right. He's never been popular ever. And, but I get the thing is that like, you know, some people have said that like, he's not, is that he's running because he kind of wants to, you know, shape the party's direction and he wants to kind of explain his actions, you know, mm-hmm. uh, around January 6th, then that this gives him a platform to, to do those sorts of things and, and, and whatever. But there are a lot of other people where you just look at them and you're just like, why are you here? What are you doing? Um, like the, the, form- yes, yes. I was going to say the former governor of Arkansas, <laughs> like, why are you, like, why are you here? Yeah. And, and it's not, and, and it doesn't, you know, I've got a better chance of starting for the yes. Lakers. I, I mean, <laughs> You know, it it's just it, it blows your mind that that these people show up. But the, but the problem is, is that you've got a bunch of people who shouldn't who have no business being there. They're they're at the debate taking up airtime, and then you have people who actually you know could potentially have a shot, but they're up there with all of these other people. And then it's obvious the entire time that like, well, you know, the guy who's in the lead is not there, and so it just kind of makes you it just kind of makes it feel like people are running for second place or, or, or something. And so it's, it's, you know, um, and, and the other thing is, you know, he wants to stick it to Fox news. I think even the next debate is like a Fox business channel debate or something like that. You know, so yeah. he's, he's not going to go to that one either. Um, I, I don't know, uh, what's going to happen going forward. Uh, I think a lot of these early debates are kind of like a, a waste of time, uh, to begin with. And so if you're if you're the front runner and you're the clear front runner at this point, I don't, I don't think that there's a problem with that, especially because if you, you know, it's not like anybody, um, you know, set the world on fire at the debate that you have to worry about now. All right. Last thing, NFL season starts Thursday. Who wins the Super Bowl? 
Give me your Super Bowl matchup and who wins it. Matchup. Uh, These are the hard-hitting questions that makes me interviewer of the year right here. Well, that's uh, I'm uh, I'm completely unprepared for uh, <laughs> who I would think. Uh, I will say the Cincinnati Bengals win the Super there Bowl. There you go. Um, I like that. Mostly, it's just because I like Joe Burrow, but but um, Joe Burrow is an incredibly likable guy. Like, if you said, "Hey, you can be one professional athlete," who would you be? He would be on my short list of guys I'd want to be. Yeah, he's one of those guys. He always looks like he's having fun. He never, also, he never, he doesn't seem to take himself too seriously, and also, he doesn't, he doesn't ever, he also doesn't ever say anything like obnoxious, right? Like, there's never a time yeah. where they're like, "Up." Oh, you know, here's here's the thing that <laughs> yeah. that he said this week. But I don't know. I don't like the NFC is really hard to even pick like who they're gonna match up against. I know uh, because the Niners got Bosa signed today. Got, got him signed 170 million dollars or, or something. So they took care of that. That was one of the big X's on on their resume. That's off now. A lot of Detroit Lions love. A uh, lot of Philadelphia Eagles coming back. Some people like the Giants. The Cowboys always get some love. I love to make fun of the Cowboys. I'll never pick the Cowboys. Um, you know, the Cowboys are like the are like the temperature in Oxford. They pe- they peaked in the nineties. And um, <laughs> no, the I, I I don't know. I think the NL uh, or I I think the NFC East is going to uh, beat itself up. Um, I grew up a Packers fan. I think the NFC, uh, the NFC North is going to... Oh, I'm surprised. I would have thought you being a Michigan boy, you would have been a Lions fan. No. Um, no. Uh, everybody was a... Every, so everybody I went to school with was either like a Lions fan, a, a Browns fan, or a Steelers fan. We all just felt sorry for the Browns fans. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, back then, the Lions at least had Barry Sanders. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I... Th- it's really hard for me. Like, I think the Lions are probably actually going to win that division, but it's really hard for me to pick the Lions because I've watched the Lions not live up to potential for essentially my entire life. And so I'd have this mental block in my in my head. But I, I think the Lions might win that division. But I but I also think I don't think the Packers are going to be that much worse uh, without Rodgers this year. I, I mean, I'll probably eat those words later. But I mean, the Packers, I think, will be decent. I don't know that they're a playoff team, but. I think they'll be decent. The Vikings will be good. Not great, but good. And so um, I think it's going to be hard for, I think it's hard for, it's going to be hard for the Lions to, I think, come out unscathed from the, just, you know, that division. But yeah, so I don't know. The, N- the NFC is hard. I guess if I had to pick somebody, I would probably pick the 49ers. We've got uh, the exact same but, Super Bowl. I've got Bengals over 49ers, so... We're either really dialed in or, <laughs> hey, congratulations to whoever else wins. I, Cincinnati just sort of feels like destiny a little bit this year. They just, they're they're a team where, like, even in the Super Bowl, you felt like, uh, I don't know, I felt this way. Like, I felt like they were there a little too soon. And um, I just, it, they but they felt like a normally, like, the Super Bowl seems like that th- this is like the, uh, 
this is the crowning moment, right? Like you, when most team, most teams that win, you kind of have a sense that they're going to, that they're going to win. And I think the Bengals got there a little too soon. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, they're, they're on the ascendancy. So, um, uh, I'm going to stick, I'm going to stick with the Bengals. I think that they're going to get one eventually. Uh, Burrow's just too good. And, uh, this could probably be the year. All right. You heard it here. Cincinnati Bengals, Super Bowl champs. Josh, as always, a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Yep, thanks. That's the Josh Hendrickson show. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Be uh oh wow, let's think next that'll be right before the uh that's Alabama week. Back we'll we'll maybe we'll talk some SEC football next time. SEC football will be in full swing by then. We'll be out of this preseason stuff where we're talking about Mercer and <laughs> Middle Tennessee and let's see who is it? Who is it? Middle Tennessee and uh, um um Western Carolina and UT Martin. I'm ready for some games, ready for some stuff to happen. So when we come back in a couple weeks, we'll talk, we'll talk a little SEC football with Josh. So thanks to everybody for listening. Thank you for all of the feedback. Really appreciate it. Gotten a ton of good feedback. Again, uh, anybody interested in sponsoring this show, being the title sponsor, holler at me. Hit me up. I've had a couple people inquire, so still some time. Hit me up, and uh, we'll make that happen. Have a great weekend, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.